0: Thank you. This is get uncomfortable the podcast where we talk race politics religion and all the things with me adam smith cannabis and hemp have long been used for textiles medicine and so much more as recent as the 1960s marijuana was targeted for political and economic gain by criminalizing what it was then deemed a drug to criminalize the users many of whom were black brown and hippies protesting the government and the war in vietnam Millions of people and their families have been detrimentally impacted by these efforts that were grounded in white supremacy, capitalism, and anti-blackness. Just say no, the war on drugs and three strikes you're out have devastated families and communities, while the prescription drug and alcohol industries have flourished. Today, legalization of recreational medical marijuana are growing from state to state. One newbie to legalization and decriminalization family is Minnesota. Who legalized recreational marijuana and decriminalized cannabis convictions beginning in August of 2023. The land of 10,000 lakes is hoping to learn from others who legalize by ensuring that those most impacted by the racist criminalization now benefit from this new economy. The rollout feels intentional and purposeful in what is hoped to be a model system that lifts the communities while giving all. Minnesotans access to cannabis as safe alternatives to many prescriptive and other more dangerous legal drugs. In this episode, we're joined by Marcus Harkus. Marcus Harkus is a family man, writer, organizer, justice and equity advocate and traveler from North Minneapolis, Minnesota. Marcus has been a cannabis consumer for the past 25 years a survival of excessive, excessive racial profiling, police brutality with post-traumatic resilience, not PSD, in large part thanks to this healing plant. He has advocated and lobbied for the full legalization of cannabis since 2014 and feels relieved that Minnesota's legislature and governor finally changed the prohibition laws in this past legislative session. Marcus served as executive director for Normal and the Minnesota Campaign for Full Legalization. He's co-founder and board trustee of the Minnesota Cannabis College, and he's a board member of Big Psych, a local psychedelic education activist organization which advocates for decriminalization and of ethnogens like sacred mushrooms. Marcus is currently doing business planning and will raise investment capital to launch his own cannabis business when licenses become available late next year. Marcus, thank you so much for sharing community with us today. Let's get uncomfortable, man.
1: Thank you. Let's go.
0: Marcus, can you talk a little bit about your work, first and foremost, that you've been doing around the country in Minnesota? Kind of as a, as a level set. We read your bio, but I mean, tell us the real. Tell us about your work, what centers you, what motivates you, really what grounds you in the-
1: So I'm from North Minneapolis. I'm a community organizer. I'm a writer. I've been a nonprofit advocate for 20 years. I'm a lobbyist. I'm a social entrepreneur. And all of my work has been related to justice and equity. So, like when I hear people call themselves progressive, especially like Democrats, political Democrats, I laugh because I don't, I don't think people are, most people are very progressive. You know, they, they, most people just think about their personal self-interest. And I have, I, I do too. I think a lot about my personal interests, but I'm a person who cares about improving society, improving the community, particularly for the most vulnerable. So that's the type of man I am. I'm a, I've been trying to work to improve society for the disadvantaged and the disenfranchised, yeah. So I've worked on a wide variety of issues, you know, community development, youth development, education policy, housing policy, workforce policy. And for the past nine years, I've focused a lot on drug policy reform.
0: I love it. I love it. Can you talk about, so level set for us, the difference between legalization, because we are we have a couple different terms. We have a term prohibition, right, and criminalization. We also have a term legalization and decriminalization. So can you level set in your mind, right? What do those terms mean? How do those terms differ from each other?
1: Legalization means that it's It's not against the law to uh, within the context of cannabis to cultivate it, to purchase it, to buy and sell it, to possess it and consume it. Whereas decriminalization within the context of Minnesota is where I live, where I'm from. The state of Minnesota decriminalized cannabis in small amounts in 1976, before I was born. But this didn't mean that the police wouldn't give you a hard time it just meant that if you had less than 42.5 grams, which is about an ounce and a half, that it's only a, a petty misdemeanor. So you can still get a ticket. You can still get harassed. Yeah, decriminalization just means that the, the criminal penalties are not as harsh as something that is like went in Minnesota before this year, before this summer. If you had more than 42.5 grams of flour, cannabis flour, you can get a felony for that. But if you had less than 42.5 grams, which is about an ounce and a half, it would be as a petty misdemeanor. You can still get a hard time. You can still get a ticket. You can still be harassed, but you wouldn't be arrested. So that's an example of decriminalization, but it's not legalization. So as of August 1st, Minnesotans can now possess up to two ounces of cannabis in the flower form, the bud, and up to 800 milligrams in edibles, and up to eight grams of concentrate. And these are all arbitrary numbers. You know, it's just, it's all down. There shouldn't be any prohibition on any amount. You shouldn't be able to be criminalized if you have more than two ounces. But we consider this progress, and it does make a lot pe- a lot of people more safe, you know, from the threat of criminalization. And we're also allowed to grow at home for personal use. Right now, you can grow up to eight plants, as long as only four of them are flowering, which means you know they have the actual bud on them growing. So you can have eight plants, but only four of them can be flowering at a time. Right now, we're waiting on the state to stand up an organization, the state agency, a new one called the Office of Cannabis Management. This will be the organization that regulates the legal cannabis industry. So, they're right now trying to hire a director. They're going to they're hire like 150 people. Then they'll go through a process of rulemaking. So, there's laws, but then we didn't want the state to create all the rules for the industry because you know legislators don't really know what they're doing. And they would definitely ruin the industry if they made all the rules through legislation, which they're just not capable of doing that well. So the Office of Cannabis Management will create the rules for the industry. And then hopefully by the this time next year, about a year from now, they'll come out with licenses for legal cannabis businesses. And so, we'll probably see dispensaries opening up by early 2025. And in terms of expungements, the new laws say that if you have a misdemeanor or a petty misdemeanor for cannabis, that they'll be automatically expunged. This is not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen by the end of this year, but it will happen probably within a year or so. But for the two hundred, and there's like sixty-six thousand, almost seventy thousand people who have either misdemeanors or petty misdemeanors for cannabis in Minnesota. But there are two hundred and thirty thousand Minnesotans who have felonies for cannabis, and their their felonies will not be automatically expunged. The state will create what they call the Cannabis Expungement Board, which will be a small group of people who will review all of the 230,000 people who like go to them. It's, that part is not automatic. The people with the felonies have to present their case to the Cannabis Expungement Board, which is gonna be a short-lived thing. It's only gonna operate for like a year or two, according to the legislation. And so not everybody with a cannabis felony will probably even know that they have the opportunity And I definitely don't think everybody with a cannabis felony will get their record expense, but they do have the opportunity to be considered for that. Which is kind of a big deal, but it's it's definitely a flawed process. Yeah, man. Well,
0: and the parts of it that are so interesting are that, you know, it's crazy that we're talking flower. And because I'm going to say, you know, if the criminalization And the roots are whether it's a misdemeanor or a felony, we know what criminalization of cannabis has done to communities. You know, then I'm on paper, then I go to jail. Then I go to jail, but because I don't have resources to be able to get an attorney, then I got to, you know, I got to take, you know, a public defender who helps me plea it down. So now I'm dealing with that, but then I I have a record. And so then I'm involved in the system and it's just never ending. So we can go ahead, whether it's the felony and you're right, the challenge is going to be on the felonies, the people that don't know or don't have the resources or don't have the wherewithal, whatever that may be to go in front of this board. But at the same time, are you going to are you going to also look at expunging all of the felonies that are a result of criminalizing something that you did strictly to disenfranchise, disempower black, brown folks? Can you talk a little bit historically? Because I know you have some scholarship to you. Can you talk a little bit about the history in America about criminalizing cannabis and even psychedelics, like you're talking about, and the harm that that criminalization has intentionally, I would say, caused Black and brown communities?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. So most people don't know about the history of prohibition. I mean, people, when they think about the drug war, they start with Richard Nixon's administration. But there was a time when alcohol was prohibited in this country. It only lasted like 12 years. But in the wake of the repeal of alcohol prohibition in the early 30s, I think it was like 1933, 34, you know, the people who worked in the government to try to enforce alcohol prohibition, some of them thought they needed some other work to do. So in the, in around, around that same time when alcohol was repealed, there were people who started a campaign to prohibit cannabis. You know, there was a time in the late 1800s, early 1900s, where cannabis was a common ingredient in like 28 different medications, pharmaceutical medications. So it's not like people in this society were unaware of cannabis. Like, but there was a guy named Harry Anslinger who had led the. He formed what was called the Federal Bureau of, of Narcotics, which was the precursor to the. DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, and in 1937, there was this act in Congress called the Marijuana Tax Stamp Act, which prohibited cannabis. That's where it began, 1937. So the campaign to make cannabis illegal. Then, you know, they called it marijuana, like marijuana, to make it sound Mexican. And th- these people were using black people and Mexican as the boogeyman to scare white legislators or other interests to to, to get their support in advocating for the prohibition by saying this is a drug used by Mexican migrant workers and black jazz players. So they used a bunch of pseudoscience. They even came out with a big movie at the time called Reefer Madness. That's where that term comes from, a movie by the same name. That was just, it was ridiculous. Like they were saying that, Smoking marijuana will make you kill your brother or, you know, go insane and just jump out a window and kill yourself. So it, it was all based on a bunch of lies, a bunch of pseudoscience, a bunch of racism. And, you know, fast forward to 1970, 69, 70, the former president, Richard Nixon, formed what was called the Schaefer Commission. And these, these people were made up, that commission was made up largely of prohibitionists, like law enforcement, Politician type people, and they came back with the study. They said no uh, cannabis or what they call marijuana should not be made illegal. It's relatively harmless. But R- Richard Nixon defied his own Schaefer Commission, and you know they declared the war on drugs as a way to distract from like the v- the failures of the Vietnam War, and just for political reasons. This was like towards the end of the civil rights movement and. So they use the drug war as a way to, like, punish black people and like the anti-war left hippie type people. So they—that's when they came out with the drug schedule. People have heard of Schedule One, you know. That's when they came out with that bogus, you know, categorization of different drugs, and they listed cannabis, what they call marijuana, as a Schedule One drug, which means that. There's no accepted medical use and a high potential for abuse, which, as we know now, is completely bogus. But the drug war kicked off in the early '70s and it led to mass incarceration, which you know just increased from the '70s to the '80s and the '90s. That's when you know we saw mass incarceration at its peak. You know, in 1994, they did the federal uh, crime bill. So the drug war has been a tool used to harass marginalized communities, disproportionately black or brown or native in poor white communities. And cannabis, you know, it's it's way more common used in drugs like heroin or meth or these other things. So cannabis has always been a low-hanging fruit. It's an easy thing to find because you can smell it easily. Cause, you know, after alcohol and, and tobacco. Cannabis is the third most popular, what they call illicit drug. So, yeah, it's been a tool that police use to harass people, and I've been a victim of it. They were arresting thousands and thousands of people. Just in Minnesota alone, they've they've arrested tens of millions of people over cannabis over the years, just since the 70s.
0: Shout out to the great literary work Slavery by any other name, and... The realities is it's criminalizing, but it's also a way to institutionalize and prop up systems like the new Jim Crow that Michelle Alexander talks about in her book and her writing. Marcus, one of the things is, bruh, I know you have national connections and I know yeah. Minnesota is not the first, right? But hopefully Minnesota is going to learn from some of the lessons in California and Washington and Colorado, these other municipalities. So talk a little bit about your national connections and what have you heard from people in states where legalization has happened? And what are some of the things you hope Minnesota learns from some of those lessons to do it differently the Minnesota way?
1: Yeah, so between the summer of um, 2015 through winter of 2016, so about a year and a half, or 2014 to 2016. I was the director of Minnesota Normal, which is a state affiliate of the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. So it was through that job that I had this luxury of time to even learn this history of prohibition and to learn how other states were you know, coming forward with legalization, because I personally I've been a consumer for the twenty-five years, past 25 years, but I didn't even think this was the issue to work on until Colorado and Washington state, you know, implemented their adult use cannabis markets in 2014. So, and that's the year when I, I had a friend at the time, we're no longer friends, <laughs> but he got me involved with Minnesota Normal and that's how I eventually got my job there but i I started meeting people from other states who are involved with this you know movement for legalization and one of the and so we have been able to benefit from those lessons. Minnesota became the twenty third state to legalize it for adult personal use. and you might notice that I don't use a lot of the common terms. I don't use the term marijuana. I don't say recreational marijuana, and I'm not knocking people who do, but you know those are terms that are often derived by prohibitionists or in But anyway, so I learned that in a lot of states, they allowed local municipalities, city governments to ban cannabis businesses. So like if you go into California, which was the first state that legalized what they call medical cannabis in 1996, they legalized adult use just a few years ago but they allow cities, and they, did it, they didn't They did do it through the legislature. Most states haven't legalized it through the legislature. They did it through a ballot referendum. But Minnesota doesn't have that type of system. That's why we couldn't do it that way. But California's model of, of, for legalization, it allows cities to ban it. So you might be driving through a conservative part of California. You could go for like 900 miles, and there's no legal cannabis businesses allowed. So if the if part of the reason is to legalize cannabis to to replace the legacy market you're not going to do that if you have wide swaths of the state where people who want to do it legally don't have a chance cuz it's banned. So it's kind of legalish in every state. We use the term for legalization but it's just legalish really. I know
0: a lot of ish. Oh. <laughs> Yeah. Right. And one of the pieces that I've heard No, I'm not in the city, so I need your this is your work. One of the things that I've heard that the hopes with the commission is gonna do, that there are some commitments to ensure that licenses are given not only to the big corporate cannabis entities and the big machine cannabis entities, but the co-ops and the local folks. And so ensuring that there's a percentage of Minnesota grown, even today, right? When you have, what can you buy? 10 milligrams a piece in edibles or something like that before, right, August? So talk a little bit about how Minnesota and the commission is ensuring that the people most harmed historically from cannabis criminalization and prohibition, right, are the same ones that can benefit from this new economy.
1: Cool. So there's this term called vertical integration, which means within the context of cannabis or any industry, that you can completely control the supply chain. So you can be a within cannabis a cultivator. You can manufacture the, the products like make edibles or concentrates from the flower you grow and you can have retail stores in Minnesota. We limit the amount of vertical integration anybody can have. And so, There are 16 different license types. And the reason we did that is because we want to create as much opportunity as possible. So the only way to be like vertically integrated to the furthest extent that we allow in Minnesota is to have a micro license or a meso license. And for instance, with a micro license, you can have your grow grow up, but it's limited to 5,000 square feet of canopy. You can have a and you can have a manufacturing license. I mean, and us, but with a micro license, you only get to have one store. With the meso license, you can do similar things. You can have a, a a grow. You can have a manufacturing facility, and but you can have three retail stores. If somebody wants to get a retail only license, they're limited to five stores, but then they're not able to manufacture or grow. And so they also have a license type called a bulk, bulk manufacturer or a bulk cultivator. I mean, even the the scale of that is limited. Like for instance, with the grow, if you're a bulk cultivator, you can you can have up to thirty thousand square feet of canopy, but then you're not allowed to have a retail license, you know, or a manufacturing license. So we limit the extent that anybody can control too much of the market in terms of being a licensee. So I think that's better. I mean, it's still going to advantage people who have a lot of money, but then nobody's going to be able to own like two dozen stores, like green solution, the green solution chain in Colorado had. So it creates more opportunity and the micro enterprise license, it's only like $750. So, it doesn't limit how much you can sell in your one store. But it, it creates a lower barrier to entry for people who have less resources.
0: Can you talk a little bit about, because you know this backwards and forwards. So in Minnesota, who fought for legalization? And who were the people, the principalities and powers, you know, we would say in scripture? Who were the folks that fought against you? So who who made, you know, and And again, you you can't climb inside somebody's head and their body, but really, what is really the why,
1: right? Yeah, that's always, I think, one of the most important questions, one of the best ones to start with. Well, for the people who were for it, it was largely a bunch of consumers. I mean, there there were older people who've been involved with this since the 70s or the 80s with organizations like Normal. I mean, there's some people who are involved with Marijuana Policy Project, but more of the grassroots people were were with Normal. There was, uh, I mean, there's people who want to get in the industry who have been involved. And those people came around later when it seemed like, oh, it's about to happen. It was more like the grassroots activists, social justice type activists or civil liberty type people who were in it for the long term. In the last several years, it was mostly people, or a lot lot of people who were trying to position themselves to get in the industry, you know, as entrepreneurs. Um, I mean, there were some social justice people who were not necessarily consumers, but those are organizations like uh, American Civil Liberties Union and stuff like that. But most of the people who fought the hardest and longest were consumers, and a lot of them were either victims of prohibition themselves or new and loved people who were. And then in terms of people who fought against it, it's primarily been law enforcement lobbies, and I can name them in Minnesota. It's the Minnesota Police Chiefs Association, the Minnesota Sheriff's Association, the Minnesota Peace Officers Association, and until a couple of years ago, the Minnesota County Attorneys Association. They decided to be neutral on this a couple of years ago which is kind of a big deal. It's better than being opposed to it. And then it was the treatment industry interest, you know. Drug treatment is a big business for some for some uh organizations. So, when you got a drug like cannabis which is so prevalent and it's easy for people to get criminalized and then be forced into treatment even if they don't need it, you know, the interest within the treatment industry that profit from that were fight against legalization. And then in the end, they they also find other more conservative interests, including the Catholic Church. I thought that was that was interesting that they got involved in the last couple of years. And then they found they you know the the treatment and law enforcement people. In this last year, they were able to form a coalition. It's like Minnesotans against legalization or something. You could have called them Minnesotans for prohibition, but you know they won't they won't admit that. And a lot of those are like more conservative industries that may already like prohibit smoking, like the Truckers Association or something. So yeah. And then they sometimes would get people who's, who had children who died from like drunk driving or fentanyl. And those they'll use these parents who are so traumatized about the loss of their children that they, they bring them in to tell their, their, I don't want to call them sob stories, like I'm dismissing them because it's real and I feel for them. But they'll bring these people in, and put on a performance, crying shit, and they'll blame cannabis. And it's not, cannabis is not to blame. So it's, when it goes, uh, you see a lot of political theories. It's ridiculous.
0: What we call drugs and what we don't. Right. Like I said, I mean, I live in Kentucky. Nah. 95% of the world's bourbon is made within the Commonwealth of Kentucky. It is an entire industry, right? It isn't just the Kentucky yeah. Derby, it's the Woodford Reserve Kentucky oh, yeah. Derby, right? Well, okay. What's up the road from my house? Like, Woodford is a county okay. where Woodford is made, <laughs> right? And it's, it, It borders Fayette County, where I live. So we criminalize the people in some drugs and then we decriminalize other people. I have a 78 year old mother who spent her entire life in Hopkins, St. Louis Park, over north. And she has such bad arthritis. She is on oxycodone, Oxycontin, all the things, and still suffering in pain. I am hoping for the day where she can use cannabis as a way to deal with the pain because at this point all of the medication she's taking is basically making her kidneys shut down and all she would need right is not just cannabis but cannabis differently prescribed by not prescribed but somebody who knows what they're doing okay take this this is the kind of edible this salve use this on your neck because you have a spinal fusion all the way through and you have all this pain and then the mentals that go along with the pain that she deals with and we've had to even talk to her doctors in the pain clinics about You know, they're all worried she's going to become an Oxycontin addict and become, you know, a heroin addict. Well, she's 78 at this point. But I would much rather have her. And I have friends who've lived in states where it's prohibition, and they've literally moved states as stage three cancer fighters because they feel like they know and believe that cannabis is their medicine. And the other medicines that they're giving them are killing them. Right. So talk a little bit about your lived experience and how you feel like, honestly, because you've been real honest, bro. Talk a little bit about how you your experience is telling you and how do you feel like the rollout of this is going in Minnesota?
1: Well, it's kind of started off in a very bad way. Which is not surprising, but. The Office of Cannabis Management whoever is chosen as the the founding leadership they're going to set the tone they're going to create the organizational culture for this agency that regulates the industry these are the people who are going to create the initial rules for the industry so it's imperative to get the right people in there and they announced uh, the the first director like a couple weeks ago and they made the governor made a terrible stupid choice, which was, and this woman ended up resigning like 26 hours later because, you know, the internet went crazy, <laughs> but they had the opportunity to hire, and I'm biased. I'm going to, I I always admit if I'm biased, but I also don't exaggerate. They had the opportunity of a lifetime to hire this young black guy, Clement Dabney III. We call him Dr. Dabs. He has He's, he has plenty of industry experience. He can formulate any product. This guy has a cannabis in, uh, Ph.D. in Cannabis Genetics and Genomics, a Master's in Plant Molecular Biology. Like, this guy would have been the best director that you could have hired in any state. I mean, he doesn't have experience leading a public institution. He doesn't have bureaucratic experience, but they chose and no offense to associate's degrees, they chose this white lady from the suburbs, no offense to people in the suburbs <laughs> or white ladies, but they chose this white lady with a associate's degree over my friend who's got a PhD in cannabis and who has like at least six years in the industry. And he understands all the racial dynamics in terms of Prohibition and the imperatives for making this an equitable, diverse legal industry. So they passed him up for this lady, who was not qualified, and she didn't even last. She didn't even last twenty eight hours. So that to me is a massive red flag, and it's like now they're so embarrassed by it. The governor's like, "Oh, we're gonna have to find somebody who just has a bunch of." experience regulating. And the thing is, if you have somebody who's a seasoned regulator, but doesn't know anything about cannabis in terms of the science or the industry, like they're going to have a, a much steeper learning curve than if they were to hire Dr. Dabs and then allowed him to hire, you know, other leadership that could compensate for his lack of bureaucratic experience. So, you know, whenever you have politicians making decisions like this for an industry, like it's it's really risky. And the, the odds of them making bad choices in the leadership are high, when it, you know, because the governor gets to appoint the first director. And right out the gate, he messed up in a terrible way. So I, I do still think Minnesota will have one of the best markets You know, there's advantages to go on later. But it all depends on what kind of leadership they get in there. Yeah. And I'm I'm not that confident. I think it'll be okay, but it it could be way better if they chose the right people. If they actually care about racial equity and justice, they don't, though. They'll use those talking points when it comes to passing a bill to to end the criminalization, but they're not going to use those talking points when it comes to you know, repairing those those disproportionately Black victims of probation in terms of helping them to cross over from the legacy market to the legal market.
0: Well, and race blind for so many other things. You know, the Twin Cities, people forget that outside of the Twin Cities, it politically is no different from North Dakota, South Dakota, Iowa, right, those places. And one of the, one of the more scary things, though, oftentimes are liberals that are not people of color that oftentimes when they're called on their biases or their, you know, challenges or their behaviors then become vicious, right? Well, you're just as in the bag, right? Progressive. The D's are as much as the R's, right? There's no good guys, bad guys, right? How, you talked a little bit about imperatives. How do we ensure, how, does, how do you, because this is your work, not just the cannabis piece, but the justice work, the abolition work, how do the people ensure that the people are centered in the commission, but also in what they're calling potentially a billion and a half dollar market in Minnesota? How do you and the community and the people, because in Minnesota, that is a difference. I've lived in a whole bunch of states and Minnesota is different as far as the people go Um, because the people don't all look brown, right? The people are all different. How, Mm -hmm. How do the people ensure that the commission is representative of the people that has an idea and it isn't just a bunch of political appointees that have done favors or paid for dinners? And how do the people also ensure that the communities benefit from those dollars that are going to come into the state, which they're guessing um, is about a billion and a half?
1: I mean, most of those dollars are going to the businesses that make the money. The tax revenue is probably going to be a, a few hundred million dollars, which is really just a drop in the bucket if you look at you know Minnesota state budget. but that we they during the legislative session we were trying to make it part of the law that the governor would be required to consult with you know uh a board of people from the community state real stakeholders to advise him on who to select as the the founding director of the OCM but you know they they removed that during the conference committee process in the end and the governor had no interest in in consulting with stakeholders on who to select for that leadership those leadership roles. So, the reality is we don't really have much influence in who he decides, chooses for that. I mean, I will say that if people do want to influence the decision makers, they have to they have to holler at them, they have to advocate, they have to build these relationships. So, like, I'm personally Planning on reaching out to the interim director, which sadly she was one of the people that probably recommended that first director who didn't pan out. So, I mean, the only way we can create the the uh, make this market people centered is to get enough people in the industry who are people centered themselves and operate businesses in a way that you know that values community that values wellness, that values justice. I mean, the reality is when it comes to business, most people they're always going to prioritize profit over people. So I think it's it's a must for people within the cannabis space who care about community and wellness or justice. They have to be conscious consumers themselves or conscious entrepreneurs you know if people go support if they don't support the the businesses that actually have those values, it's going to be hard for those businesses to stay in business, to survive. So it's really on the on the consumers and the entrepreneurs to make the market what they want it to be.
0: Bro, thank you again for sharing the time and all of the knowledge. I appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to this episode of Get Uncomfortable. Get Uncomfortable is produced in partnership between me, Rachel Hansen, and Adam Smith. If you want to hear more from Adam, visit his website, hearadamspeak.com, where you can book him to speak at your organization and hear more about what he has to say about what we talk about here on the show. Now, if you want to support the show itself, there are a variety of ways that you can do that. You can leave us a review anywhere you listen to podcasts, send us an email, or share an episode with a friend. Until next time, stay uncomfortable.